Well, if you would grab hold of your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of 2 Samuel. Our sermon text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 13, and we're going to read through chapter 16, verse 14. We are in the middle of a long series on the book of First and Second Samuel, moving through this book, watching the Lord as he brings his kingdom to bear upon Israel, moving through the various stories. And so here we are in the latter days of David's reign. And so we read this morning, Second Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 13, hear the word of our God. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. The king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed passed on before the king. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook of Kidron. And all the people passed by on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until all the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace. With your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Hithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with, him, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. And behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David has passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that has belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." And then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, what, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Oh, Father, we come this morning asking that you would extend your mighty right arm and that you would do great works of salvation in our midst today. We trust that this is your word and that you attend the preaching and the teaching of your word and you do great things with it. And so we come asking for two specific realities this morning. First of all, we come asking for those who are in Jesus, that those in Jesus, from the preaching of your word and what's revealed in it, would have bold and confident faith. 
We ask that for ourselves this morning. We want bold and confident faith, and so would you give it this morning as we receive your word? And Father, we pray for those who are outside of Jesus this morning, not in your blessed kingdom. We pray this morning that you would open eyes that men and women, even children, would see the great glory of your Son and that you would give saving faith. We know you can do this and we long to see what you will do. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Those are some dark and bitter words. Just try to imagine the scene with me. You're surrounded by voices. They're coming at you from every conceivable angle, and it doesn't matter what you you do. You can't hide yourself. You can't insulate yourself from all of those voices, and all the voices share the same bitter refrain. They, They come at you saying this, there is no hope for you. You're lost. God has no delight in you. God has utterly forsaken you. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Those are the sort of words that shatter souls and break bones. And I asked this morning, have words like those ever been spoken to you? Or maybe even worse, have you ever spoken those kind of words to yourself? Well, these dark words that I quote are not made-up words. Rather, they come from the pen of David, from Psalm chapter 3, verse 2. These were the words that pursued David as he fled from Absalom, words that apply to the story we just read. The bitter refrain that followed David as he went into exile was this, there is no salvation for you in God. God has forsaken you. And as we look at the text before us this morning, there is good reason to conclude that David was forsaken by God. The evidence begins to to pile up. First of all, David was betrayed. We're getting the story from the text of Scripture, and we see that David was betrayed by his own son, Absalom. But that wasn't the extent of the betrayal. Absalom had seduced Israel into a conspiracy against David. Chapter 15, verse 13. All the hearts of the men of Israel had gone over to Absalom. And so we see that David was betrayed not just by one man, his own flesh and blood, his own son, but he was betrayed by the whole nation of Israel. And for this reason, in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, David would lament with these words. He would say, O Lord, how many are my foes? O Lord, how many are my foes? It's like David can't even count how many people are against him. Second, because of this betrayal, This betrayal committed by Absalom and all of Israel, David had to leave, and he had to leave urgently. And so there's trouble brewing. David senses it, and so David cries out in alarm. Chapter 15, verse 14, to the people of his house, he says, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so as we follow this story, we see a a sad state of affairs in our text David is systematically stripped of everything that belongs to him. He is, first of all, stripped of his home, his his palace. 
Then he is stripped of his city, the city called by his own name, the city of David. And then finally, he is stripped of the land of Israel itself. He is thrust out from the borders of Israel. And third, because of the betrayal and the resulting flight, David was pushed down into the valley of the shadow of death. As we follow David's story, David's flight from Absalom, it doesn't have a tactical feel to it. It has the feel of a a funeral procession. There is weeping and moaning and tears. Chapter 15, verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. Chapter 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So we can just put all of that together. There's betrayal, there's flight, there's tears, and that means something, something deeply theological. Think about it like this. Israel's story, as we trace Israel's story from the book of Genesis to the book of Joshua, is a story of advancement of salvation. The story moves from salvation to salvation. What does God do? He saves his people out of Egypt. He leads them through the wilderness and he plants them in the promised land. Salvation to salvation. But as we look at the story of David, David's story is in reverse. He's going the wrong way. His story is now a story of devastation to devastation. He is in the land of promise, set up as the king of Israel, ruling and reigning for God's sake. But now it's all being stripped away. He has to leave his house, he has to leave the city, he has to leave the land, and now he is thrust back into the wilderness. And so we can see why there are so many people assaulting David with those words, driving those bitter words into his soul, saying to David again and again and again, there is no salvation for you in God. We can hardly blame these people. They were just watching the news and drawing the obvious conclusions. They were doing the mental math as they observed God's dealings with David. One plus one obviously equals two. They were saying, how could God be for you if all of these bad things were happening to you? How is the promise of God applicable to you if God is driving you far away from his presence? How is it possible that God yet loves you when all of this trouble is chasing you down? There is no salvation for you in God. And sadly, if we were among the crowds, watching all of this happen, reading the newspaper, we'd have likely been saying something very similar to David. There is no salvation for you in God. But here's the question we have to ask. Is any of that true? Are any of those conclusions airtight and rock solid? Can we take that logic to the bank and count on it? Well, David didn't think so. When David faced all of those devastations, when he was assaulted by those soul-shattering, bone-breaking words, he spoke in reply words of confident faith. So people were saying to David, there is no salvation for you in God. And then read Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. David replies, he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David says, no, Yahweh is my salvation. And as we think about the story, we shouldn't concede to these dark and bitter words either. And we shouldn't concede because there's more in our text than just devastation after devastation. Because in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, we find glimpses of God's covenant-keeping love with David. 
Yes, we can be sure that David is being driven out into exile for his sins. Yes, we can be sure that God is raising up evil from David's house. Yes, we can be sure that the sword is going to devour David's house. All of this was prophesied by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. God is going to bring about his word. But even in the midst of this, we see the Lord's grace. And so we find the Lord's grace revealed to David in a series of interruptions. So David is traveling in our story. He's leaving Jerusalem and he's traveling east out to the Jordan River where he's going to leave the land of Israel. And as David is on this eastward journey, David is interrupted five different times. And some of these interruptions that David experiences are encouraging. And some of these interruptions, we can see how they would have established David in his faith, how they would have bolstered it up so that he could carry on. And, and these Interruptions even reach out to us and begin to instruct us and encourage us how to live in faith for ourselves. And then other of these interruptions are discouraging. There's no way around it. They're just plain discouraging. And we get to watch David take them on in faith, bearing them up in hope. And then there are others that are just downright confusing and bewildering. They don't seem to make a whole lot of sense, and they don't really move the needle of faith, either the left or the right, all that much. And such are interruptions in this life. Some are encouraging, some are discouraging, and some are just plain confusing. And what we're going to do is we're going to follow David's flight from Jerusalem out to the Jordan, paying attention in particular to these five interruptions, trying to learn what the Lord is up to with David. So here we go. First interruption. So at the edge of Jerusalem, David is leaving. A procession takes place in chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. And so David's servants pass by, all the servants of his household, and then David's personal bodyguard passes by. We find the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and then lastly, 600 Gittites. And as David looks at this last group of his personal bodyguard, the 600 Gittites, it prompts a conversation. David queries the leader of these 600 Philistine men. He asks them, chapter 15, verse 19, why do you also go with us? And the intentions of David aren't exactly clear. Maybe David is trying to save these, these Gittites, these Philistines, from trouble and wandering with David in the wilderness. Or perhaps David is testing their allegiance. But whatever David's intentions might have been, this Philistine from Gath, Ittai, shows unswerving allegiance to David and David's cause. This is amazing. Look at chapter 15, verse 21. Dave, er, Ittai, in remarkable words, binds himself to David. Ittai says, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. What a glorious word. The grace of God is shining through. Though Absalom, though Israel has turned away from David, here is Ittai, a Philistine, a man from the city of Gath, the least likely convert. Here he is giving his allegiance to David when there seems to be no reason to give allegiance to David. And what is Ittai saying? He's saying this to David. I am for you. It doesn't matter if it's life. It doesn't matter if it's death. It doesn't matter if it's gain. It doesn't matter if it's loss. It doesn't matter if it's joy or anguish. I am with you. As we consider Ittai 
Ittai is like a spring of fresh water in the middle of a desert. And we can see what the Lord is doing here. Through Ittai's commitment to David, the Lord is refreshing David and making him confident in faith. And we must learn as Christians not to overlook events such like these, for this is how God often works. And we see it in David's story again and again. When when David is in deepest distress, what does the Lord do? How does he deal with his servant? He sends a friend. We saw it before in the story. He sent Jonathan, who strengthened David's hand in God. And here again, David is in deep distress, and he sends Ittai, this Philistine, to do the very same thing. That's the first interruption. Second interruption. So in the middle of this procession, there's not only a friend with this great show of allegiance towards David, there's also the ark of God. And so the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, in this great act of loyalty, following an Ittai step, carry out the ark of God. And, and what's happening here, the priests are declaring that they are for David and the cause of David, so much so that they are ready to take the ark and go with David wherever he is going to go. They're ready to wander with the ark of the Lord. But this whole scenario presses David with a question. What should he do with the ark of God? Should he take it with him? We just have to think about David's situation for a moment. It would have been tempting for David to take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with him for many good reasons. The Ark of God was the token of God's presence. How do you know God is with you? Well, just look at the Ark. The Ark is with us. God is with us. The Ark is the footstool of Yahweh, the Lord of angel armies. That's good news, especially when you're facing a host of enemies and for reasons spiritual and political For reasons having to do with military, it would have made good sense for David to grab onto the ark and never let go of it, saying, the ark is with me. I don't care what else happens. But as we look into our text, what does David do? He sends the ark back to Jerusalem with the priests and the Levites. And that's surprising. That's head-scratching because that's probably what we wouldn't do. We would grab onto the ark and say, it's coming with us. Well, why does David do this? Well, David does this because he has come to know something about the Lord. He has come to know that the Lord is the sovereign king. The Lord cannot be manipulated or played with. Yahweh will do as he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. David knew that. And so David knew this. It didn't matter if the ark was in the temple of Dagon or in the wilderness or even in the hands of Absalom, Yahweh's perfect will would be done. It didn't matter. And so what does David do? He doesn't attempt to manipulate the situation with the presence of God. He instead entrusts himself in simple and humble faith. Chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, David says, Carry the ark of God back into the city. Why? If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. What is David saying? He's saying, Yahweh is the sovereign king and I bend low to the king of kings. And brothers and sisters, we would be wise to imitate imitate David. Our God will have his way. It doesn't matter how you try to manipulate the situation. Yahweh will have his way, and the call is this. Bend your knee low to him. 
and say, as Jesus has instructed us, your will be done. Your will be done. Third interruption. And so this long procession out of Jerusalem is over. David's house has passed by. His bodyguard has passed by. He's had a conversation with Ittai the Gittite. He's had this conversation with the priest. He sent the ark back. And now the scene moves on to the Mount of Olives. And it's a very somber scene. We find David. He is mourning. He is weeping and crying. And so are the people with him. But here in this scene of great sadness, David is interrupted and this time with terrible news. He gets the news that Ahithophel, the wisest counselor in Israel, a man with unrivaled insight into the way things work, has gone over to Absalom, chapter 15, verse 31. This is the worst thing that could have happened. So David goes to his knees, and he starts to pray, and he prays with desperation. Chapter 15, verse 31. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Something amazing happens here. David makes this prayer of desperation, and David's prayer doesn't go on the call waiting list. David picks up the phone of prayer, and there's no elevator music. Rather, without delay, without a moment of hesitation, the Lord answers David. While David is upon the Mount of Olives, on the summit, David is met by another friend, Hushai the Archite. And David immediately recognizes Hushai for what he is. He is the gift of God. God is answering his prayer in this conversation. So what does David do? He, he sends Hushai back to Jerusalem as a plant in Absalom's court. And if you know the story, we're going to see it in the weeks to come, that this is the undoing of Absalom and it is the very salvation of David. And so we're looking at David's story And even in the midst of all of this devastation, we can see that David isn't forsaken. David has what? He has the ear of the Lord. David calls, and what does the Lord do? He answers David's prayer immediately, doing more than David could ask or think. Oh, Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Bang. Here's Hushai. And the text prompts us in faith, doesn't it? The text is is calling us to reason. Won't the same God who answered David in his deepest distress answer us when we turn our faces to him? Won't he do it? Isn't that who our God is and what he is like? Fourth interruption. So David starts his journey again. But he's interrupted again, just a short ways past the summit of the Mount of Olives. We can see David moving, but his progress is slow because of all of these conversations. And so we find an old acquaintance, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. And he brings to David a big load of provisions. He brings bread and fruit and wine, all the things that David would need, all of these good things for a man who's going to go wander in the wilderness. But as readers, we read this story, and we say, there's something fishy about this. And David understands it too. He begins to smell it, and so he asks Ziba, chapter 16, verse 2, why have you brought these? He's looking at the gift, and he's saying, why? What's going on? And Ziba answers, but it doesn't satisfy David, and so David asks another question, chapter 16, verse 3. He asks, where is your master's son? And so Ziba lets the cat out of the bag here. He blatantly, as we will see, he lies to David. He tells David that Mephibosheth is making a plot to get back on the throne of Israel, to take the throne from the house of David. And as readers, we say that just doesn't make sense from what we know about Mephibosheth. He's a cripple 
How's he going to do all of this? But we go back to the scene. And here's David. He hears this news from Ziba. And whether out of confusion or because of the frantic state of affairs or maybe because of sleeplessness, he believes Ziba's lies and grants Ziba all the possessions of the house of Saul. Everything that belonged to Mephibosheth, it now belongs to Ziba. And this is just a strange scene. It's bewildering. Ziba is full of lies, and that isn't good. David is confused. That's not good. And Mephibosheth, this righteous man that we've already gotten to know in this story, is robbed of all of his possessions. Definitely not good. But even here in the midst of the confusion and the lies, look at the story. David is given what he needs. He's given bread and fruit and wine. Here is Yahweh providing for his servant all that he needs through the strangest of circumstances. Interruption number five. This last interruption in David's journey from Jerusalem to the Jordan probably could be better called an assault. So Shimei, a relative of Saul, spots David And he's angry. You can tell he's been angry for a while. And he sees David in his grief, in his trouble. And he says to his soul, this is going to be good. And so Shimei goes out and with his anger, he begins to shout curses at David. And he gives full vent. He doesn't hold anything back. There's no filter. Chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, he says to David, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. And Shimei is so mad that words don't even adequately express his anger at David. And so he starts to pick up stones and he starts to pelt David and his servants with stones. And he he grabs dust and he flings it up to the air so that they would be covered in dirt. And this doesn't take place for five minutes. This is an extended situation. David is passing by and here is this man following along on the side, cursing them, throwing stones at them again and again. And again. And with this sort of treatment, I don't know about you, but I might have been tempted to shout back equally vile curses at Shimei, or I would have been tempted to pick up the stone that he threw at me, saying, You threw the stone, I'm going to throw it back and knock you out. Or as Abishai insists, take up a sword and cut this man's head off so he doesn't bother anyone else. But look at David, he's silent. He refuses to respond to Shimei. He lets the rocks hit him. He offers no rebuttal to the false accusation. These accusations are false. David has done no wrong to Saul or Saul's household. We have watched the story unfold. He doesn't do anything about these curses. And we ask, well, what is going on with David? Well, David speaks and we learn of his heart in chapter 15, verses 11 through 12. David says this, Leave him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. So David understands something about Yahweh. Yahweh is the sovereign king. And David is detecting the work of Yahweh in this somehow. Yahweh sent him. Then he goes on. It may be the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And there we find the answer. Why doesn't David take the sword? Why doesn't he curse back? Why doesn't he offer a rebuttal? Why does he stay quiet? Well, David believes something about the Lord. He believes the Lord is the righteous judge of all the earth, and he is going to sort this out. David has hope that the Lord will intervene for his sake. 
And again, we see that there's something here for us. When we are met with maltreatment in this world, what ought we to do? Well, we ought to shut our mouths. We ought not to pick up stones, or even worse, a sword. No, we're to shut our mouths and to wait upon the righteous judge of all the earth to take action for our sake, because he is the righteous judge, and he will take action for the sake of his people. We ought to put David's words in our own mouths. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me today. The Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And so that's David's journey from Jerusalem out to the Jordan. And those are the five interruptions that David counters in between. And and from these vantage points, from these interruptions, we get this vantage point that we can start to see this story differently. In the midst of all of these devastations and troubles, we can see glimmers of God's grace. Here is help from a friend. That's good. The Lord's at work. We see a, a gift of bread and fruit and wine. And even though it's confusing... We say, I can see the Lord at work. He's sustaining David. We see this answered prayer. God's at work. We see them working on David's soul as well. Through these tangible gifts, God strengthens David's resolve to cling to his anointing and not let go of the promises of 2 Samuel 7. How is David's faith sustained? Well, it's sustained through these practical gifts from God. And we can see why David would not take those bitter words to heart. All of the people are shouting at him, there is no salvation for you in God. And David replies, we can see why, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And brothers and sisters, we get a picture here in the midst of this devastation of bold and confident faith. Here is David believing the promises of God, trusting in the plan of God, even when all the earth attempts to sway him from it. I don't know about you, but I want to have that kind of bold and confident faith. I want to have faith that is stalwart, immovable. I want to be able to say when thrust down into the valley of the shadow of death, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I want to be able to say when the the powers of darkness assault the soul, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. When everyone is chanting that bitter refrain, there is no salvation for you in God. There is no salvation for you in God. I want to be able to say with boldness, no, Yahweh is my Savior. He will come to my rescue. I wait for him. I want to be able to do that, and I suspect you want to be able to do that. And so the question is, how do we get that kind of confidence? How do, we, how do we get there from here? Well, as we consider our text, surely God meets us in many of the ways that he met David. He sends a friend who brings the right word of encouragement in the, in the season that we need it. God lifts us up through it. He answers a prayer in such a remarkable way that it induces renewed faith in him. Does that happen to you? It happens to me. He gives bread and fruit and wine when we are desperately hungry and needy. He provides for our needs. And those are all precious gifts. And God meets us, and God meets us this way. And when he meets us this way, what ought we to do? We ought to take his gifts and with thankful hearts say, Thank you, Lord. I know you're working for my good. Would you turn these gifts for the good of my faith? But I want to tell you something else. I need to tell you something else, something better. 
We have access to something better than what David did. Let me put it like this. You don't have to wait for an answered prayer. You don't need to wait for a gift of bread or fruit or wine. You don't need to wait for Ittai the Gittite to come to you and give you his commitment. You don't need to wait for any of this because in this moment there is something better. There's something more sure, something more tested that will give rise to bold and confident faith that will make you stalwart and immovable in the Lord Jesus. And the gift is this, Christ himself. Christ himself. And so I want to preach the word of the gospel to you again. Because only the word of the gospel gives bold and confident faith. Our Lord Jesus walked the same steps that David did and intentionally so. There's this uncanny resemblance between David's life in these chapters and our Lord Jesus' life at the end of his life. Think about it like this. David crossed the brook of Kidron and wept upon the Mount of Olives. And our Lord Jesus crossed that very same brook and wept upon that very same mount. David was betrayed by one of his own, his own son, and abandoned by his own nation. And our Lord was betrayed by one of his own, one of the twelve, Judas, and was betrayed by the Jews as they handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. David was assaulted by jeers and insults and curses. All the nations said to him, you are forsaken by God. And our Lord Jesus was met with greater revile. Curses and taunts pounded his crucified body as he was strung out on Golgotha. We see that David was driven out from the land of Israel. He had to cross the Jordan. And our Lord was taken outside the camp and suffered outside the city gates. And so there's this uncanny resemblance between David's life and our Lord Jesus' life. It is as if Jesus is taking up these words and walking through them for himself so that we might see something. But we know there's a deeper reality at work in the life of our Lord Jesus. David met all of this trouble. Why? Because of his own sin. He broke covenant with Yahweh, and he was receiving the, the consequences of his sin. But as we turn our eyes to Jesus, our Lord never did wrong. He was perfect and innocent, separated from all sin. All the trouble, all the suffering came to Jesus because of why? his commitment to the plan of salvation. And because of this, Jesus' valley was deeper than David's valley, infinitely deeper. He came to drink the foaming cup of God's wrath. He came to be immersed in a baptism of wrath. He came to bear up definitively once and for all the sins of his people. But get this, even in the darkest, most terrible part of the valley of the shadow of death, in the very pit of the grave, the promise of God never departed from the Lord Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of God did not falter. All the curses, all the taunts, all the jeers came upon the Lord Jesus with fury. There is no salvation for you in God. There is no salvation for you in God. But all of those taunts were put to shame when on the third day, God himself raised his son through the power of the spirit unto life indestructible. That's the story of the gospel. God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know what this means? We don't have to wait for an answered prayer. We don't have to wait for the arrival of a good friend. We don't have to wait for bread or wine or fruit. Those are all good gifts from God, but we don't have to wait for them because all that our faith needs has been given once and for all, definitively so. And so I ask, do you want to be bold and stalwart in your faith? Do you want to stand firm 
when all the forces of darkness rage? Do you want to pass through the valley of the shadow of death? Here is the answer. Go this day, and by faith, Look at that empty tomb and reckon the truth of the gospel to your heart. Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is my assurance. God saved him from the pit and he will save me from the pit because I am in him. I am in him. Even more, go this day and look up at the sky. It's a perfect day to look at the sky. Go out this day and look at the sky and say the gospel truth to yourself. My Lord has passed through these heavens and he is seated in the heavenly places, ruling and reigning over all people. And there is a day coming when he will pass back through these heavens and he will rescue me from all evil and trouble. And brothers and sisters, this ought to bear down upon our souls in the most remarkable way. Hear the truth. There is salvation for you. The taunt of Psalm chapter 3, verse 2 is not true. There is salvation for you, and there is salvation for you because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so, friends, I urge you, look at the risen Christ. Look at the skies. And when all the taunts and doubts draw near to you, reckon the truth of the gospel to yourself and say this. Say it with David. O oh Lord, you are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we turn our eyes to you. You are the giver of salvation, and we pray. Give us faith that we might see Christ raised and reigning and coming. And give us bold assurance. Keep us from being shaken and destroyed. Lift us up to see Christ and make us joyful and happy in him. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.